read verse 5. 1 John 1, starting in verse 5. John the Beloved speaking, this is the message. Everybody say the message. This is the message which we heard or learned from him or Jesus and now declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, I, I, I've been spending uh, over the last few years a lot of time in First John, and one of my, the main reasons I love First John, it's probably one of my favorite New Testament books, and one of the reasons is this. It's the only book in the Bible that actually tells us in noun form who God is. 1 John 1, God is light. 1 John 2 and 3, God is life. 1 John 3, 4, and 5, God is love. God is light, he is life, and he's love. Those are actual nouns. Now, the problem in the church world is this, is if I go on Facebook and say, God is love, someone always jumps on and say, yes, but God is righteous. I'm like, yeah, he's absolutely righteous, but righteous is an adjective. The purpose for an adjective is to describe the noun. It's not the noun itself. It is something that is descriptive that adds to it. So is God righteous? He's absolutely righteous, but his righteousness is based on his light, his life, and his love. Oh, but God is holy. And I'm like, well, of course he is. God's absolutely holy, but his holiness is based on his light, his life, and his love. Holiness and love are not warring with each other. Righteousness and love don't battle with each other. Who he is is light life and love everything else is descriptive of that and then of course the number one i normally get when i put something like god is god is love but god is just and i'm like absolutely but for some reason the church uh, has seemed to put god's justice at war with his love and they're not separate from each other they're actually right there with each other because even god's justice again just and justice is not a noun it's an adjective, and so even God's justice, even in the Old Covenant, if you go to Zechariah chapter 7, verse 9, it says, practice true justice, declares the Lord, which is mercy and compassion. So even God's justice is not based. See, our problem is we think justice, and we think you go to prison for the rest of your life, or we think an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, because we normally have been taught more Moses than we have been Jesus. Help us, Father. And so our idea is retribution when God's idea of justice is restorative and it's not punitive. His heart is for his children to be healed, reconciled, and delivered, and not destroyed. Matter of fact, there's a passage of Scripture that every one of us in here, if you've served God for at least five to ten years, you've probably told someone this. I used to do it for years. When someone would ask me a question about God or the Bible that I didn't know, I'd say, well, you know, God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So in other words, if I don't have an answer, I just use the excuse and I pull a passage in Isaiah completely out of its context. And if you actually go back to that passage in Isaiah that says God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways, it's actually talking about his mercy on sinners. So when God is saying my thoughts are higher than yours, what he's saying is I'm nicer than you. I'm kinder than you are. 
My mercy endures forever. My ways that are higher than your ways is you think, get them, God. You think that if you were on the cross like Jesus, you would have called 10,000 angels and say, wipe them all out, God. But my response is, Father, forgive them. You see, when it comes to knowing who God is, God is light, God is life, and God is love. None of them are fighting with his other character traits. God is absolute truth. God is absolute holiness. He's absolute righteousness. He's absolute justice. But it's all based on his character, which is based on his love. And so this jumped off the page at me, and I, I preached out of this passage many times through the years. God is light. But one thing that jumped off the page at me is John said, this is the message that we learn from Jesus. Now, I want you to think about this. If, if you followed someone for several years, and all of a sudden they're gone, they're no longer with you, and someone asks you, what did you learn from them? And you can take it in a nutshell and put it in a phrase. He didn't say, this is what we learned from Jesus. We didn't learn about the death, the burial, and resurrection, even though that's extremely important. What we learned about Jesus is, 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 is dying to who we once were. E even though that's not horrible stuff, that's all there in Scripture. But the one thing that John highlights is that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Now, I, I want you to think about this. It would have been good enough if he'd have said, there's no darkness in him. But he has to add a, at all. Everybody say, at all. Yeah. Now, you see, this speaks to me because, um, you know, I, when you travel as much as I do, I'm a professional restauranteer. I mean, you know, I, I rarely need a menu at a restaurant. I mean, just because I go out to eat all the time. People are constantly taking me out to eat. And I've been looking for a while for one of them places that will pay you to critique them. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's like, I already do this. I might as well make some money doing this, for heaven's sakes. But there's one thing, I'm not a super picky eater. I'll try anything, but there's one thing I don't do on any level is onions. I detest onions. I can't stand the smell of them. If I crunch down on an onion, I can't eat for nearly 24 hours. I probably got to try that for a diet. I don't know. Onion diet. It's just, I, I don't like onions. I've never liked onions. As a matter of fact, my, my friend Nate Blouse, who's been here with me before, uh, one, one day he said to me, he said, I think you need to do a session with me about onions because it was probably something that happened when you were a kid. You need to get healed of that. The onions are a trigger to you. I said, okay, let's do it. And so we do a session. Nothing came up. I just don't like onions. They got nothing to do with my dad made me eat them or my mom made me eat them. I just don't like onions. And so uh, back here a few weeks ago, I went out to eat with a friend back home in the Luba area. And we went to a, a Japanese hibachi for lunch. And I said, I want, the, I want the steak and the shrimp. And I want mushrooms for all the other veggies because I don't know why. I just like fungi. And I want no onions at all. All right. I mean, I, I reiterated it like three times. I don't want them anywhere near my food. I don't want to see one. I don't want to smell it. I don't want any onions at all. And John says, this is the message 
that we learn from Jesus. In my three and a half years of not only running around with him, but also being the one that snuggled right up next to him. This is, this is the John that's called the beloved. John, John the one that was always with Jesus. Matter of fact, John the only one at the foot of the cross when everyone else threw him away and left behind and went back to fishing and doing everything else. John, along with the three Marys, are the only one that was still there with him. Uh, I believe there's prophetic reasons for it because John is translated gracious and it's grace that is always around. I don't think it's an accident that when Jesus rises from the dead and he tells, he tells the women, go tell the disciples and Peter, Peter takes off running for the tomb, but John actually takes off running and John gets there before him, probably because they believe John was the youngest one. He had a little more energy uh, than Peter, who knows? And John gets there first, but John doesn't run into the tomb. John stands outside and peers in and Peter runs straight into the tomb. I remember years ago, I was like, God, why did Peter run in and John never go in? And then it dawned on me one day the meaning of their names. Peter means stone, a picture of the law. The law gets swallowed up in the finished work, but it's John Grace who's always pointing the way. The stone was not rolled away so Jesus could get out. Hallelujah. The stone was rolled away because he was showing us that he's removing the rock of offense. That which hindered man is now being removed. He takes away the first to establish the next it's no accident that it seemed like it was always peter james and john in that order you know have you ever wondered why the writers at times didn't put john peter james i mean why why, why didn't they put jimmy john now i'm hungry uh anyway they, they didn't put Jimmy, John, and James. It's always Peter, James, and John in that order. Maybe it's because Peter means stone, James means supplanted or removed by, and John means grace because the stone is removed by grace. Maybe that's why in the modern transfiguration it was Peter, James, and John in that order, and they walk up, and the law and the prophets are standing there talking with Jesus about his demise, and immediately the law is removed by grace. The stone is removed, and Jesus is standing there all by himself, and the Father says, this is my son hear him they only spoke of him in other words don't hear them they had a purpose but their purpose is now fulfilled hallelujah the same john who by the way is the only one that records one of our protestant favorite verses you must be born again only time it's ever found is in the book of john peter Peter mentions that we were born from above of incorruptible seed, but the word born again, mainly in John 3. Why is John the only one that recorded it? I personally believe it's because John's the only one that ever heard it. Jesus never publicly preached to anybody, you must be born again. It wasn't, matter of fact, I got that in my book. It's, it, it's not the main message. Matter of fact, the only reason the Protestant world actually preaches that you're a born-again Christian is because when they came out of Catholicism, Catholicism taught that you were born again or born from above at water baptism as an infant. And so they said, well, we don't believe that anymore, and so we got to call it something, so let's just use this word, which actually is translated born from above. It doesn't mean it's still not important. It doesn't mean it's still not scriptural or biblical, but John's the only one that recorded it. I remember years ago saying, why was John the only one? And they recorded, and it dawned on me. John was always snuggling with Jesus, and Nicodemus came to him late at night. Everybody was sleeping. John's the only one that got woke up. <laughs> so John records it because John is the one that heard him say to Nicodemus, You must be born again. John, the one closest to Jesus, says, This is what we learned. This is the 
message. I, I, wonder, I wonder when Jesus pulled him aside and taught that. I, I began to meditate on this, and maybe, maybe it's when James and John were hanging out with Jesus, and he was on an evangelistic crusade. And he went into a couple cities. And those cities didn't receive Jesus. So James and John, by the way, in that order, not John and James. It's not an accident that, that the writers put James and John because James means supplanted or removed by and John means grace. Because anytime you remove grace, you want to call down fire out of heaven and kill everybody. If you remember the story about the sons of thunder, those cities didn't receive Jesus. And so James and John said, let's just call fire out of heaven. And wipe them all out because these are the days of Elijah. They must have loved that song. And then Jesus is like, huh? What are you talking about? You don't know what spirit you are of. You want me to call fire out of heaven and kill humans? Didn't you hear me a little while ago when I said it's the thief that steals, kills, and destroys? But I've come, Daddy and I, we come for one thing, life. Yeah, but over here in the Bible, fire came from heaven, and it said that you did it. And Jesus obviously straightened that all out. You see, the truth is God gave Elijah a gift, an anointing, and a grace to call fire out of heaven on a sacrifice. Problem is, he out of his own fear and insecurity started using that gift, which, by the way, his gifts and calling are without repentance. When God gives a gift, he don't take it away. And he used it out of order and started calling down fire on people. How many people are given gifts from God and they use them illegitimately? How many people have been given genuine prophetic gifts and they pervert those gifts? Huh? Why would we not think them? Because Jesus shows up and he says, you want to call fire out of heaven? Daddy and I, we don't do that. And maybe that's the time he pulls John aside and he said, John, listen, let, let, me, let me explain to you who my father really is because according to John 1.18, and I don't think it's an accident that John wrote this down, John 1.18 says, no man had seen God at any time until Jesus who came from the Father revealed him. That means nobody got God right. Now that is a huge, if you don't understand it, a huge contradiction. It's five times in the Old Testament people saw God. Moses talked with him face to face. Abraham cooked God a meal. I shared that with him when I was with you the last time. He fed God. There are people that saw God in the Old Testament face to face, but John says nobody ever saw him. Nobody ever saw him. Now, see, it's not that Moses didn't talk with God face to face. He was just talking through a veil. So he didn't see him clearly. See, there's a reason why in Romans as well as Corinthians, Paul tells us that all that was written beforehand, the Old Testament scriptures, he said all that was written beforehand was there to admonish us and give us hope. How interesting. Now, how could that give us hope? Because if people in the Old Covenant who did not have God living on the inside of them, communing spirit to spirit, who were not born from above, by faith could attain what they attained without really having a clear picture of who God was, how much more we in the New Covenant that know exactly what God looks like, because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus came to clear up all of our misconceptions about who God was. 
Jesus came to clear it up to say, listen, you thought that my father was like this. I'm here to tell you he actually wasn't like that. You know what? You think stealing, killing, and destroying my father was a part of over there, even in the Old Testament. But I'm here to tell you that was man's misunderstanding because my daddy and I, and because I say nothing but that which I hear my father say, I do nothing but that which I see my father do. And my father and I were about one thing. It's about life and life to the full. Maybe that's when he pulled John aside and he said, John, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, I need you to track with me a minute. Because, see, when I was growing up, I heard God was light, but he definitely had a dark side. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Listen, if you can't, just thank Jesus for it because that means you didn't, you, you didn't have all that religion put in you. I'm here to tell you God had him a dark side. It's like I, I, I remember my whole life growing up, he loves me, he loves me not. I'm in the kingdom, I just got kicked out. My name's in the book, my name just got erased. I, I mean, I got saved so many times because every time you'd mess up, he's kicking you to the curb. I mean, he's, he's casting you away. It was like God is light and God loves you and God is good. But boy, you better watch out because he's going to get you, get you, get you, get ya and man that long bony finger come on I'd sit there like Jesus and then depending on our different doctrines it's like uh, is there some darkness in God well you know all the good kids get to go upstairs with daddy but he's got a basement <laughs> he's got a dark side goes down there and takes out all of his anger on them kids downstairs Y'all don't want to help me with that one, do you? Just... And then, according to our eschatology, oh, oh, God is love and God is good, but when he comes back someday, Rambo God's going to show up because he's going to come back and slaughter all of his enemies. I still remember when I was 10 years old and my dad had a 10-day end-time prophecy seminar, and we had every morning sessions and every night and the man came and put up all of his charts and and every morning and every night sunday to sunday then he left on monday and monday tuesday and wednesday and the next week we watched those cheesy 70s movies a thief in the night a distant thunder the mark of the beast and everybody's heads are getting chopped off and i was terrified just terrified so on friday we're sitting having a family meal and my dad looks across the table and said so jamie son what'd you think about all that over the last 10 days and this was my 10 year old mind at work I said well dad kind of what I got out of it is we that prayed the right prayer we get to go upstairs and sip some lemonade and tea and have a party with Jesus for seven years while all of our family and friends are having their heads chopped off then at the end of seven years we get to jump on a spirit horse with Jesus with some spears and swords and come back and slaughter everybody else is that about right he's like well well kind of I said I'm not interested wrong eschatology actually started to turn my heart away from God because I said if God's like that I'm like, my cousins don't know Jesus. I don't want to come back and kill my cousins. I love my cousins. Why would I want to, why would I want to do that? Well, you see, because God is light, but he's still got a little dark side to him. Am I making sense to anybody in here? And, of course, where we get that from is the Bible. Because rather than know how to properly interpret ancient texts, we instead try to literalize, especially the Old Testament, when Hebrew thought is full of hyperbole. It's full of metaphor. 
It's full of language. There's more than 300 figures of speech in the Bible. It's rarely just what it says, all right? There's some stuff that's absolutely literal, but I'm going to tell you, I have people that try to argue with me all the time. The Bible is literal. It is what it says. I'm like, so how come your eyes aren't plucked out and your hands ain't cut off? I mean, if it's literal, so you believe when everything is said and done someday, we're all going to go over to the Middle East and we're going to worship a little white woolly creature sitting on a throne because Mary had a little lamb, its fleece was white as snow. And there's going to be a river flowing out of a little white woolly creature. Like, well, no, the lamb is Jesus. So it's not literal. Amen. You can go like this, you can go like this, shrug your shoulders. It's amazing, the silliness. You see, what happens is a lot of times the reason we believe God has a dark side is because we view things in the Old Testament from the wrong context. Listen, let, let, let me start by saying this. God inspired men to write the scriptures down. Every part of the Bible is important, but it does not all have equal value. The new trumps the old. Jesus is better than Moses. I thought I'd get a better amen right there. The new covenant has better blood and better promises, okay? It's, it's better in the new. I don't know about you. I guarantee you, Pastor Jamie and I are really pleased right now that we live in the new covenant because this morning we had been up here all in linen and butt naked underneath the linen, and we would have had to stand here and slit a bunch of goat's throats and turtle doves, and I don't know about you. I don't want to be a butcher. I want to be a preacher. I'm extremely good. I don't think you could find someone to preach <laughs> if it was like that. You see, there was, a, there was an ancient group of people in the first century called the Marcionites. And there was a man by the name of Marcion who was actually an admiral. He was a shipboat captain, very brilliant man. Who He had a whole movement in the first century that actually taught that the God of the Old Testament was the God of the Jews and not the Abba of Jesus, and he threw the whole Testament out. That, of course, was refuted as heretical as it should have been, Maybe because, mainly because the apostles and Jesus quoted quite often the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is still extremely important. But you have to also understand the context of who was writing. Now, I hope I'm going to help you all today because the church don't want to have these conversations. See, we're losing, we're losing tens of thousands of Gen Z and millennials by the time they get to college because the professors are destroying the Bible in one philosophy class. And the kids come call their parents and say, do you know the Bible has all these contradictions in it? Do you know this, that, and the other thing? And, and, and then the kids freak out and they walk away from the faith because they were taught that there's, there's this infallible, inerrant, perfect book with no contradictions and have all the answers to life in it. And we pretty much taught generations that the Bible is the fourth person of the Godhead. And we taught generations how to be Biblians rather than Christians. That's why people will take Scripture and beat you over the head with it and miss the whole heart of Christ, which would never be to use Scripture to beat you over the head with it. Amen. Good teaching, brother. Hallelujah. When I see anytime you start talking about this, we've all thought it. I mean, let's be honest. How many of you, if you're, if you're going to be extremely transparent with me today, how many of you have read stuff in the Old Testament and scratched your head? Come on. I mean, you, you've read stuff and you've been like, what? I mean, I remember when we had our church in Michigan and, you know, 70% of our church were brand new believers. And I would tell them, in the Old Testament, read Psalms and Proverbs. Read the New Testament, except for the book of Revelation, until you can take my class on how to understand it. And don't read everything in the Old Testament until you take my class on how to understand the Old Testament in its right context. Because they would start reading over here about this loving Jesus who was amazing with sinners. And then over here, it's like God's opening the earth, swallowing, killing 
people. I mean, they, you can read 2 Samuel 14. God never takes life, but, de, but de, de, devises ways to give life. Three chapters later, God opened the earth, swallowed, killed 5,000 people. It's like, huh? Jesus said the thief steals, kills, and destroys. I've come that you might have life and life to the full. And then we read about God telling Joshua to kill men, women, and children. That God's okay with genocide and infanticide and... You turn to, the, turn to the Psalms, and he's like, take Babylonian babies and smash their heads in the rock. Huh? <laughs> so God's for abortion? Of course not. But we read that stuff rather than understand the language of the day, and it gets us very confused because it seems like that the father of Jesus, it's like I shared with you this morning on, on Abba, is getting ready to manifest in the church like never before. We're about to get a fresh revelation of the father because a lot of people are like, Jesus is cool, but I'm not sure about his dad. His dad's a little terrifying. And then depending on your atonement theory, most of us were also taught, that God was really angry at all of us because, you know, even though he's love and love is not easily angered, he was angry for 5,000 years and wanted to destroy all of us because our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy made a mistake because obviously God's got anger issues. I'm being facetious. And in the midst of all that, Jesus said, you know what, Daddy, I know you don't like them and you want to kick them to the curb. You want to throw them into the fires of hell, but I'm going to go in their place and everything you're angry about with them, take it out on me. And we have this whole picture that God killed God so that he could appease God. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. And it's made generations be afraid of Jesus' father, but they're good with Jesus. Jesus is awesome, but his dad, he's a little terrifying because he's got some darkness in him. Am I making sense to anybody at all? Now watch this. Let me give you a couple examples. A few years ago, I'm sitting at home, and I got a phone call from the young man who's been the drummer at my parents' church for 25 years. And he was about... In order to get a raise and a promotion with AT&T, he had to go back and take some college classes. And so I get a phone call about 9.30 at night. And it's him calling, and he rarely ever called. And I'd be like, what's he calling me about? I said, hey, Nels, how you doing? He's like, Bishop, are you aware he had just taken a philosophy class at Central Michigan University, and they had destroyed the Bible in an hour and 15-minute class. And he's like, are you aware of this, this, this? And I said, yes, I'm aware of that. Or do you know about this? I said, yes, I, I understand all of that. That doesn't bother you? And I said, I don't have a relationship with a book. I have a relationship with Jesus. It doesn't say in the beginning was the Bible. In the beginning was the Word doesn't mean the scriptures are not important. And I began to sit and explain to him because one of the first things the teacher said is let me show you how this Bible is full of contradictions. And the number one one the teachers normally go to is they normally go and they go to Samuel where God told Samuel, it, it says God told Samuel to number Israel and when he numbered, when he numbered Israel, a bunch of people died. And then 400 years later in Chronicles, the scribes are writing down the same story and the scribes telling the same story said God told Satan told David the number of Israel. People are like, well, see? The Bible's contradicting itself. There's God told him here and Satan told him here without understanding ancient cultures. Listen, I need you to hear this closely. When the Old Testament was written, it was 
written to a culture that was extremely, extremely, uh, it'd almost be like maybe some of your relatives that live up in the hills of Kentucky, I won't say West Virginia, but in, in Kentucky that are super superstitious. People that were extremely superstitious that actually believed in a council of the gods. Dr. Michael, Michael Heiser has some great books on this right now that about how they interpreted through the Old Testament was that there was a council in heaven, Psalm 82, and the council is not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is that God, Elohim, was the God of all the gods. Baal was the God over the land of, of Babylon. And then there was Molech who was the God over all this. Literally a picture like Zeus and Poseidon and Hades and Athena all in heaven or Odin and Loki hanging out with Thor. In Egyptian culture, it would have been Amon-Ra and Set and all of these different, that, that in the heavens there's this council of the gods because they were polytheistic. They didn't believe there was one God. They believed that there was a multiplicity of gods. And most of the people were superstitious, not only ignorant, but they couldn't read. So the people that ruled were the people that were full of wisdom and knowledge and understanding and whatever they told them, the people believed. So the context of when the Old Testament is written is that, first of all, did they, did they believe? that God told David the number of Israel? David absolutely believed God told him that. But a bunch of people died then. But you see, the reason it was written that God told David to do that is because there was no Satan yet. You understand something? In, in Hebrew theology and thought, there was no Hasatan is the Hebrew name, the Satan, Hasatan, until Second Chronicles. That is why they believe that if it was good, it came from God. If it was bad, it came from God. That's why Job would say the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But we know the backstory. We know it wasn't God taken away from. We know it was the devil taken away from. Come on, you with me? But this culture had no concept of an accuser. They, they, their theology was changing and growing. And so when, Dave, when it was written down about David, David believed God told him to do that. 400 years later, their theology had begun to change because you know what happens as people grow? They mature. They get better understanding. How many of you have, in the last 10 years, has your theology completely been rocked? You still just believe in the exact same way you did 10 years ago? There's a lot of stuff that's completely changed in me. Why? Because we're growing. The New Testament was the exact same thing. You got Paul in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. He agrees with the Jewish church. He said, okay, I'm going to make sure that, uh, you know, these Gentiles, they don't eat any food offered idols and, and anything that was choked or blood. And, and you get about 20 years later in the future, and he's telling the churches, I just eat it. It ain't going to hurt you. <laughs> Why? Because over a 20-year period, guess what happened? Paul grew. But we don't allow the scriptures to do that. <laughs> we don't allow it to understand. So 400 years in the future, they now had a revelation. If it was bad or death or negative, it wasn't God doing it. Instead, it was the Satan. And so they look back and say thousands of people died when David did that. So God didn't tell them that. Satan told them that. Come on, you with me? See, well, if you don't, but if we don't understand that, then what happens is we read this stuff and we get confused and we start to think, boy, God's got a dark side. Because, I mean, you can read passages of Scripture that God never takes life, he only gives life, and then all of a sudden it says God's killing a bunch of folks. I mean, that can get really confusing to you. I remember in my mid-20s, I was really struggling with this. I mean, to such a degree, I almost didn't want to preach anymore because it was, it was so confusing to me. And my dad happened to hand me a Young's Concordance one day. 
I like I use Young's much more than Strong. Strong actually wasn't really good with Greek. Young's Concordance to me is much better than, than Strong's. And in the beginning of the Young's Concordance, you can actually open it up in the first couple pages, there's a whole little paragraph there. And Young makes the statement at the beginning. He said, when you interpret the Old Testament in the Hebrew language, there's two things. There's something called a causative tense and a permissive tense. So whenever you're reading a passage, depending on the context, you can interpret it as God causing it or God permitting it. All of a sudden, it dawned to me, it's, this, okay, this wasn't God opening the earth, swallowing and killing people. In their ancient minds, they believed that if there was an earthquake and people died, God did it. And so they said, God opened the earth, swallowed, and killed people. They blamed everything on God. If a meteor fell from the sky and wiped out people, they said that was God doing all that because good, bad, and ugly, all of it came from God. Jesus shows up, clears it all completely up, and he said, Daddy and I had nothing to do with that. In other words, my father got blamed for a whole bunch of stuff that he had nothing to do with. That's why no man had seen God at any time until Jesus. I mean, I don't know if you've ever thought of this before, but imagine you're Joshua one day and you're in the middle of a battle and you cry out to God and you're like, God, in order to win this battle, I need you to have the sun stand still. And this is what I love about God. God's gracious, patient with mankind through history. Notice what God didn't say. He didn't say, Joshua, listen, son, you're an ignorant moron. The sun always stands still. It was Galileo a few thousand years later that actually figured that out, and the church put him under house arrest, and he ended up dying simply because they didn't believe, they believed that the, the sun revolved around the earth, the earth didn't revolve around the sun. Well, we know today, because of Galileo, it's actually the opposite. And so when he says, have the sun stand still, God, in his mercy and grace, didn't say, you idiot. You know, the sun always stands still. I mean, he didn't start to have a science class with him and say, listen, you don't know what you're talking about. Instead, in God's mercy and grace, he just has the earth stand still and makes them think the sun stood still just because God's a good father. Well, you see, these teachers in our universities go to passages like that to bring confusion to a whole generation to try to get us to think that God has a dark side. And if God has a dark side, how can you trust him? If he's got a dark side. And then, then, if we're really honest, we live, we live in a culture in the church where God gets blamed for all kinds of stuff he had nothing to do with. I mean, we have modern-day prophets who, many of them, I believe, have genuine prophet gifts, but they're prophesying from a wrong covenant. And so many of these prophets prophesying that God, God sent Katrina to New Orleans because of the sin of New Orleans. The problem is it barely touched Bourbon Street. Instead, it took out the seventh ward. I, I was there after it happened. It took out the marginalized. It took out the people that God cared about the most. It didn't even touch Bourbon Street. I've told people for years, I said, if God is sending all these disasters because of sin, how come a never hurricane ever hit San Francisco? How come it only seems like, like it's the currents from Africa through the Caribbean and hitting the South because that was the slave trade and millions of slaves were thrown overboard and died and their blood is still crying out from the water. Maybe, maybe there's something more to do with that than, than it is anything else. Maybe, maybe 
It has nothing to do with God. I've told people for years, I said, if a hurricane ever hit Montana, I'd say God might have had something to do with that. Some of y'all went back to eighth grade geology class. You're thinking in your mind right there. It's like, if a hurricane hit Montana, it might have been God that did that one. I'm just here to tell you. 25, 30 years ago, I would have boldly stood up before you. I would have boldly said, if God doesn't judge America because of our sin, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. I boldly say today, if God judged America for our sin, he'd have to apologize to Jesus. That means Jesus didn't take all the sin of the world. And God's no longer counting men's sins against them. So anytime you're hearing someone and they tell you that God's sending a natural disaster, well, why would we think, does any parent put sickness on their child to teach your child a lesson? That's crazy. No parent would make their child sick because I'm trying to grow you up. I'm trying to mature you. I'm trying to teach you something. But those are the ideas that God is light, but boy, he's still got this little little dark side. And then as I mentioned this morning, the world has picked up on our wrong theology because every time there's a natural disaster, the insurance companies call it an act of God. And God had absolutely nothing to do with it. It's amazing the stuff God gets blamed for that he had nothing to do with at all. But you see, a lot of this has brought all kinds of confusion to the church. And rather than teach that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, instead we teach God is light, but just maybe. Maybe he's got a side to him you can't trust. And even though we don't say it like that, Many times it is inferred. I have a very good friend of mine. His dad died when he was nine years old, and the preacher after the funeral walked up to him, and he said, young man, God loved your dad so much that he took him because he needed him more than you did. My friend wanted nothing to do with God till he was in his 20s when he had an encounter with God because he said, God took my dad because he needed him. I need my dad. God didn't need my dad. But we say stuff like that. Well, you know, God took them home. Actually, God never, ever takes anybody. Death is an enemy. He receives them when they die. God doesn't take them. Ridiculous to say, well, God took them. No, God didn't take them. God received them. He doesn't take. It's the thief that steals, kills. Destroy. So anytime you read or you see a news story about destruction, about death, about sickness, about disease, you can know for a, on a shadow of a doubt, God has nothing to do with it because God's not the cause of it. Does God permit some things to happen? Yes. Why? Because there's a law called seed time and harvest. There's a law called sowing and reaping. That's why Jesus in Matthew 23 is weeping over Jerusalem because he just prophesied. He said, from the blood of Abel all the way till now, you've killed the prophets over and over again. Again. Now the Father sends you his own son, the Messiah, and you even rejected me. And now all of that blood is going to be visited on this generation. What we call wrath, Romans 1 tells us what the wrath of God is, that wrath is not God doing something, it's actually God not doing something. It's God saying, okay, you know what, this is what you want, I'm taking my hand off, and now sowing and reaping is going to come into place, and destruction is going to take place, not because I want it, but because it's a law. 
God's not the one releasing the judgment. God's not the one putting sickness on people. God is not the one. He is the one. Why? How do we know that? Because Jesus showed up and he relieved people of pain. He didn't put pain on people. Jesus showed up and he constantly was transforming things. He was touching lepers and healing them. He wasn't the one causing any pain. But see, if we still view God through that lens, it's going to still cause us at times to explain some things away. It's going to cause us to still be a little afraid of our Father. Am I helping anybody? See, God is light, and in Him, everybody say with me, say there's no darkness at all. There's no darkness at all. Matter of fact, you know that in the the Hebrew and the, and the Greek language both, that the word light is nearly always a metaphor also for knowledge, and darkness is a metaphor for ignorance. That the light, the knowledge, dispels the darkness. It dispels, it dispels the ignorance. Matter of fact, when someone doesn't know what they're talking about, we say they're out for a walk in the dark. Isn't it interesting that normally when you're dealing with some type of sickness, it gets worse at night? Most people die not in the day. In the light, they die in the dark. There's an intensity that takes place. At night, weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. You see, we that are in the new covenant, you got to understand, the Old Testament, it was people in darkness under shadows. Paul said they were living in the shadow of the true, and they were looking towards the light. It's like that light right there. They see a light in the distance that, that we see there is a light. But now you and I on this side of the cross, we're not in the shadows. We're in the light. We know exactly what God is like because all we got to do is look at Jesus. But now we look back in the shadows, and we can learn things from there. We go back there to mine the pearl of great price. We go to look for Jesus and types and symbols and shadows. We don't go back there for righteousness. We don't go back there to learn how to live our lives in the new covenant. But we learn things from there. So it's all valuable. But if I want to know what Father is like, I look in the face of Jesus, not Moses. And let me say this, because this tends to bother people. I've heard my whole life people say the living word, Jesus, when he came to the earth, he never one time contradicted the written word. Really? The whole Sermon on the Mount's a contradiction. The whole Sermon on the Mount is you've heard said. Who told you that? Moses. But I say, in other words, Daddy and I, we didn't say that. Moses did. I'm here to clear up all the misconceptions that Moses gave you. I'm here to show you what my father's really like because this is the message that we learned from him. God is light. And in him, there's no darkness at all. That doesn't mean... I pray you don't walk out of here thinking that I'm saying the scriptures aren't important. Y'all know everything in the Bible is important. Come on, listen, I love the scriptures. I love them so much to actually spend the time figuring some of this stuff out because it's bugged me for years to to realize because when I read the new and I read the old, it seems like God's bipolar. Seems like he's happy over here, but he's ticked off over here. Until you understand that that was God's covenant journey with ancient man see not everything written in the bible actually presents god correctly i mean all you gotta do is go to job 42 job 42 verse 5 god shows up in the middle of a conversation with job and his counselors and he says i'm irritated with eliphaz the tamanite 
because everything he said about me is not true. Well, Job 5 all the way to Job 42 is mainly all Eliphaz the Tamanite. You know how many sermons I've heard in my life out of Job 4 or Job 5 all the way to Job 42 and they said this is what God is saying and then God shows up in chapter 42 and says, I didn't say none of that. It actually tells us right in the text. That's why a text out of context is a con. That's why you don't practice old McDonald theology. Here a verse, there a verse, everywhere a verse, verse. That's not how this works. You do the whole context, the whole chapter, the whole book. Read the whole thing and understand it properly. See, that's why God will, God will bring explanations to us. That's why you got to mention this morning, Jeremiah Chapter 7 and 8, it says the scribes got it wrong. And Jeremiah shows up and he says, Thus says the Lord, when your forefathers came out of Egypt, I never told them to offer up all those sacrifices and do all those feasts. I told them to obey my voice. Talk about a contradiction. He literally is rebuking Moses. Because Moses said, God said, do all these feasts and do all, these, do all this. And yet Jeremiah shows up and he says, no, that's not what God said at all. I mean, we have dueling prophets in the Old Testament. I remember being in the service one time with dueling prophecies. Two ladies in the church who didn't like each other. One stood up and says, thus says the Lord this. The other one says, thus says the Lord, rebuked her. It went back and forth, and I'm looking at the pastor like, are you going to do anything about this? Found out later, it was a couple of ladies that were all ticked off at each other, and they had dueling prophecies going on in the service. It was ridiculous. <laughs> but I was only in my 20s. I don't know, you know. Now I'd have said, stop. <laughs> stop misrepresenting our father. Stop using a gift God give you out of order. And messing people up rather than actually edifying and bringing strength. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. See, until I'm convinced of that, there's going to be some freedom I don't walk in. Until I'm convinced of that, I'm going to blame God for some stuff in my life that was either my own doing. The devil made me do it. It's always going to be someone else rather than actually take responsibility and realize that God's love for me is he wants nothing but light and life and love. It doesn't mean bad things don't happen to good people. It doesn't mean it doesn't rain in the just and the unjust. But if I see sickness, if I see disease, if I see destruction, I see death and I see pain, God has nothing to do with it now let me stop with this are we all still doing alright anyway I'm having fun stuff's been lighting me up and setting me free there is something that happens when there is a lack of light there's actually a disorder called sad Seasonal affective disorder. Uh, people in the north tend to deal with it more than a lot of times people in the south. And it's when you have a lack of sunlight, it releases things in your body, different, uh, you know, serotonin, melatonin, different things that cause you to put into a depressive state. And what takes care of it is they call it light therapy. They bombard you with light, vitamin D3, and it removes the sad because you remove the sad with light. Jesus is the light of the world. 
And he said he has given us the light that lights all men. When my kids were very little, I would not let them sing the song, This Little Light of Mine. It irritated me. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine for Jesus. I wouldn't let them sing it. And I had one person say to me, why won't you let them sing it? I said, it's not that they can't sing the song. They're just not going to sing it the way it's written. I'm not going to let them sing this little light of mine. When the light they have is not little, it's the light of the world. We ought to sing this great big light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. Don't you know that you have the light of the world on the inside of you? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And the original Greek gives an inference of greater is he that's in you than everything outside of you. The capacity that you have. I mean, think about it. In the New Testament, there was a man that had a legion of demons. That is thousands. That means God made man's soul, spirit, body to have the capacity to contain thousands of of spirits. Imagine how much glory we can carry. Imagine how much light we can be filled with. And he said, everywhere you go, release the light. He said, as children of light, walk in the light. God doesn't have light. He is light. And how do you transform darkness? You don't transform darkness by screaming at the darkness. You don't yell at the darkness. You don't yell at City Hall. You simply turn on the light. When you turn on the light, it removes the darkness. And, and the church right now, like never before, in this season, in this season, it's been a dark season. People are sad. People are dealing with seasonal affective disorder. They're, they're they're dealing with right now. It's a lot of folks. They're not even coming back to church. They're, they're sad. They're afraid. They're full of fear. All kinds of other things. The sad is affecting them. That's why we need to gather together. Listen, it's great being able to watch it online, but there's nothing like getting together with other people that have light in them. And when you gather together and you release the light, you release healing, you release goodness, you release grace, you release blessing to each other because now it's light manifesting in light. When you stay home with just by yourself, there's some light you're missing out on because the light just doesn't come from this desk. The light comes from those sitting next to you. Sometimes you just need someone to reach over and encourage you and give you some strength, someone to pray for you when you're in pain because the pastor can't get there, can't be there for you. There's something about that light that changes us. I want to I want to encourage you. This is a day and an hour. Holy Spirit said something to me about six months ago. He said, the day of just preaching and teaching about Jesus and not being Jesus is coming to an end. Over the last year, nobody needed us to preach Jesus to them. They needed us to be Jesus to them. When someone's all alone and they're afraid, they don't need us to say, well, I'm going to pray to some ethereal being floating around in the sky because most of your friends that don't know anything about God don't care at all about some being floating around on a cloud somewhere. They need Jesus in flesh to put his arms around them, and that's you. They need light to expel darkness and the light that's in us to bring goodness and grace everywhere that we go God is light and in him is what no darkness 
at all, if you don't remember anything from tonight, if you'll just remember that. So someone tries to tell you God was in that and there was darkness in it, there was destruction in it, you just smile. Don't, don't start correcting them right away. Don't smack them. Don't get all religious with them. Just smile and say, not my God. The God that I know, love, have a relationship with and serve in him, there's no darkness at all. That alone, if the church just got a hold of that, we could change the world. Because I'm convinced we're not fully convinced that in him there's no darkness at all. But there is. Bow your heads, would you? Father, I thank you today. I thank you for your amazing goodness. I thank you for your amazing love. I thank you that you are light, you are life, that you are love. I thank you that even in Genesis 1, everything started in the dark. It started with darkness, and the first thing you said is, let there be light. You want to flood our lives with light in every area. Illuminate us, not in ignorance, but illuminate us in knowledge and understanding because it's not the truth that makes us free. It's the knowledge. It's the truth we know that we've had an encounter with that sets us free, and that transforms us, and that changes us. It's, it's that goodness that we long for. It's that goodness that is transformative. And I thank you for that, Father, and we bless you for it. In Jesus' name. I want you to do something. If you can, could you stand with me for a moment? I want us to do something together. Um, I, don't, I don't know what every one of you need tonight. I don't. Maybe you're here and, and you've been battling sickness. You've been da- battling a disease. You've been, maybe you've been battling depression. It's real. It's, it doesn't mean you're less than. It doesn't mean that you're a horrible person. I have loved ones that have dealt with clinical. It's serious stuff. It, it genuinely affects people. But what transforms everything is still light. And there's something about when we who are carriers of light begin to release that light. I love the Mount of Transfiguration in me is so beautiful because it says that Jesus and Elijah and Moses are standing on this mountain and when Peter, James, and John see them, it says nothing but light is illuminating out of them. At that moment, Jesus is, the Greek language is metamorpho, he's metamorphosized. In other words, the light that was in him began to just ooze out of every single pore. Because it's transformative. And I, I don't know what you need and the truth is, it's not, it's not just my light that can bring strength and peace and life and health to you. The truth is there's people standing right next to you right now that have the same light in them. He is the light, the light, John 1 says, of all men. Every human carries that light. Some just don't know it. They don't know what that light looks like. They need to be informed that they're carriers of light. But it's what I want you to do. I, I, I don't, 
I don't know what everybody needs, but depending on what you're comfortable with, maybe you're not comfortable to put your hand on someone's shoulder, maybe you're still social distancing, but you can at least at least point your hand that way if they feel comfortable letting you do that. And I want us to just begin to release light, and I want to pray because I believe God wants to release healing and grace and joy and, and remove discouragement and replace it with encouragement. So would you do that? Whether you just point your hands towards the person next to you or you can ask them if they're comfortable to put your hand on their shoulder, that, that's up to you. But at least spread your arms and let's pray right now. And I just release light out of you and pray for them. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for that light. That light brings healing. That light brings health. That light brings joy. It brings peace of mind, peace that surpasses all understanding. And Father, we just release health right now over every one of your sons and daughters. Father, we release health right now. Father, through those cameras, there's people that are sitting and watching this now and some that will watch it in the future. That Holy Spirit, there's no distance with you. We just release light right now to flood their minds, to flood their hearts, to flood their souls, flood their eyes with light. And we just declare, be whole, be healed, be strengthened. We ask for marriages to be put back together again, relationships to be healed. We release that grace, Father, right now on every one of your sons and daughters. And then empower us by your Holy Spirit to carry that light everywhere we go this week. We thank you that this week we're going to be releasers of light. We're not going to hold the light in. We're, we're, we're not going to be as they were in the Old Testament where, where they declared Ichabod, which means inglorious, or they kept the glory inside and they didn't release it. But we don't want to hold it in. We want to release it everywhere we go to bring grace and peace, truth, righteousness, true justice, releasing mercy and compassion everywhere we go. We'll thank you for it, Father. We'll thank you for it, Father. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Now give me just a moment to release a few things. Uh, Pastor Jamie and Lisa, I, I, I'm telling you, I, I saw this.